As a visionary, I'm looking for one thing, core value fit. I, I learned early on that I can teach you how to wrap a car, teach you how to run a printer or sell something. I can't teach you to care. I can't teach you the grit. Your mom either taught you that or they didn't, period. There are a lot of people out there who are disenchanted because there are bad owners out there. There are bad entrepreneurs out there. There are bad leaders and bosses. And that's why a lot of people hate their jobs. Get a kid who used to work at McDonald's and then get him to work at Chick-fil-A and see what happens. It's not the kids, it's the leaders. It's not the fact that you own a lawn care company. It's you, right? You're responsible for the culture of your organization. Well, hey there. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they are created to be so that others may benefit and God may be glorified. It was a couple months ago now that I went to Arizona to do a team training with a company called AZ Pro. Now, it's a large format printing company that's owned by my friend and the guest of today's conversation, Chris Prinovost. And I was so excited about this specific training for two reasons. Number one, just because anytime I get to go do an ownership mentality training with a team of people, and this was a team of 75 people, so I was so excited because I've just seen how if someone can learn to adopt an ownership mentality, that can change the trajectory of their career. But more than that, it can change the trajectory of their life. And so, of course, I get so excited about that content. And I just love doing that workshop with teams around the country. But then the second reason was because anytime I get to go do a training, it oftentimes gives me the opportunity to observe and learn from world-class leaders and their teams around the country. And that was certainly the case with AZ Pro because I knew that Chris was a world-class leader. He's someone that doesn't just focus on theory and principles related to leadership. He focuses on the application of those principles. And this is probably most noteworthy in the fact that he's read books like Traction by Gino Wickman and Rocket Fuel by Gino Wickman and Mark C. Winters. And he's a, an absolute proponent of the entrepreneurial operating system. But he doesn't just like those things in theory. He has actually built his business following the entrepreneurial operating system. Now, if you haven't heard those books, um, they're just phenomenal. And I would add them to your reading list because they're just fundamental to the building of a business that is bigger than yourself. But one of the principles that stands out in those books is building your company around an org chart structure that includes a visionary that is typically the founder, the face of the organization, the person that's plowing into the future for the organization, and an integrator that is focused on the execution and application of the vision that's being cast. And truly, that is how Chris has structured his company, and that's some of what we're going to talk in this conversation today. I'll tell you, I learned so much in my time with Chris, and I learned so much in this conversation specifically that I literally set out to hire a COO immediately after, and now we've hired him. And I'm so excited because we're going to introduce him to you on this podcast, but it was literally my observation of what that dynamic of visionary integrator did in Chris's company that made me set out to find that role for our own. So I think this conversation is going to be so valuable for you because it's practical, but it's also profound and that it connects all of the tactics that we talk about to higher principles. But I'll tell you, it didn't always start in the most profound place. That's because Chris's entrepreneurial story started in a Taco Bell. I was 18 years old working on the line at Taco Bell and uh, dealing with the district manager who you expect to be pretty well uh, versed as far as how things should happen. And it was at that moment that I realized I never wanted to work for anybody ever again in my life <laughs> because she's telling me to do something. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make logical sense. It's kind of stupid. And she came back and said, well, yeah, I understand that. That's how we're doing it. I said, so you understand that it's not smart <laughs> and you're going to make me do it anyways. I said, this isn't for me. So. Very good. And that's the moment that you knew you were an entrepreneur at your core. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Very good. And I think that's so often a trend is that sometimes it's like people think, oh, you had this incredible aspiration. You had this incredible dream. And it's like, sometimes it's like, well, maybe a little bit of that, but more often than not, it's like I had a complete inability to work for anyone else. I wanted to be an engineer. Really? So yeah, I was in, I was at ASU going to school to be an electrical engineer. And that was my dream. And I realized right then that it wasn't going to work out for me because I wasn't going to be able to do things that didn't make a lot of sense. 
Hmm. Okay, so you had that click, that light bulb moment at 18 in a Taco Bell. What happens from there? So I uh, changed majors, changed to business management, and uh, started two businesses. And from there, it kind of just blossomed and and grew and didn't grow and hit some some walls and had some tough situations happen. But uh, you fight through those things, you keep going, and you move forward. And starting those businesses. Was it almost like you knew almost instantly like, oh, this is where I need to be. This is what I need to be doing. Or what was that like? Yeah, it really was. It was, you know, some business leaders have this grandiose idea right from the get go. They want to own this huge thing and change the world and have this major impact. Right. I was trying to pay my bills. Yeah. I was just trying to make sure I could pay my rent, pay my car payment, you know, and do that type of stuff. So Fast forward a couple of years after having sold those businesses and starting a new business, same thing. I'm just trying to pay my bills. My brother and I started a graphic manufacturing firm in 04, and it was literally, we're just trying to make sure we have enough money to eat. And, you know, through, through just taking really good care of our clients and making smart decisions, we saw a lot of organic growth. And sooner or later, we found ourselves blessed in, in a position where we were no longer just trying to pay our bills. It became more than that. Mm. So every single business that you've owned, then it sounds like you have bootstrapped from the ground up. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah everything's been started with either $0 or just a couple <laughs> bucks. That's what's, that's what's always so crazy to me is like some people say like, oh man, I just, my business crushed me. And it's like, it doesn't cost any money to start a business. How did your business crush you? <laughs> yeah. You don't have to have some huge bankroll to start a business. The, the big mistake I see a lot of people make is taking on debt too early mm. um, or debt at all. You know, I'm a big Dave Ramsey follower. That's right. And we try to grow the business at the speed of cash, like he likes to say. And as long as you make smart decisions with your your cash, you're gonna you're gonna be in good shape. And can you speak to not just the financial practicality of that? Because I think most people can at least wrap their head around that. But what I've seen is that it almost does something for an entrepreneur intellectually and emotionally to have to be scrappy. Like there's something that comes from that. So can you speak to what the scrappy stage of all the businesses that you've owned has, has taught you? There's twofold there. So one, you've got that scrappiness of I've got to sell something or we're not going to eat tonight. Right. Your back's against the wall. Yeah. So you've got to bring something home. So there's that where you're willing to do stuff that maybe you weren't normally willing to do. You're really working. I mean, I've seen business leaders across the country just do crazy amounts of work and just kill themselves doing it. The second piece of it is when you, you know, there's, I have to eat part, but then there's the other part where I'm not a slave to the bank, right? I'm mm-hmm. not, there's not this immense pressure where I have to make a dumb decision or a decision I don't want to do because I've got to pay some bill that's looming out there. So you're able to make smarter decisions and say no to some stuff that might not be, you know, ideal for you if you're not sitting there with that that looming payment at the end of the month. Yeah, it's almost like you have the luxury to say no. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. There's more power in that than what you say yes to. Okay, explain that a little bit. So as an entrepreneur, you know, if you like, let's take hiring, for instance, okay. right? You've got this immense need to fill seat because you are working 75 hours a week. You take anybody with a pulse, right? <laughs> no kidding. If you're not in that position, if you've had some more forethought, if you see the work coming and you're able to, to plan a little bit better, you're going to make a better hire hmm. as opposed to taking the first person who's qualified, skilled, you know, to do the job. You have the ability to say no because you're not operating out of haste. Yeah. That's a powerful concept. So I know for a fact that some of the people that listen to this podcast, they are in that scrappy stage of business and they even may know the value of scrappiness. And at the same time, they're kind of thinking like, okay, I don't want to be scrappy forever. Right. Like, (laughs) you know, know, if these are the good old days, I'm ready for the good old days to to be over. Right. And so what are the things that you did intentionally or that you advised? business owners, business leaders do intentionally to start, it doesn't happen all at once, but to start gradually removing yourself from the scrappiness. Mm -hmm. So my number one piece of advice I can tell you is is sit down and look at what you do. Mm -hmm. Sit down and literally put it all on a piece of paper and figure out what your week looks like. You know, Dan Sullivan talks about your unique ability, right? Mm -hmm. The more you can stay in that unique ability, the better off you're going to be. 
when you're operating outside of that, like let's say most business owners, most business entrepreneurs, they hate bookkeeping, right? They hate accounting. It's like, <laughs> it's the dread of most, most entrepreneurs. I tell people Excel is Satan's tool. I hate yeah. every time I have to click that green icon. Yeah. And I know how to use Excel by out of necessity. Right? Yeah, that's I didn't right. do it because I love it. But if you can start to take the things that you don't like off of your plate, mm-hmm. you will start to like what you're doing more. You're going to stop procrastinating on it because if, if you have two things and one of them you like doing and one of them you don't like doing, guess which one you're going to do first? That's right. Right. Guess which one you're going to put more work into and make sure it's correct. So get those things off of your plate. And it doesn't have to be crazy. You can, look, bookkeepers are not expensive. You can do a fractional bookkeeper, a, a virtual assistant or something like that. It can get that piece off of your plate. I have a friend who owns another graphics company. He routinely carries probably a couple hundred thousand dollars of uninvoiced work, right? Yeah. It's not even an AR yet because he hasn't even invoiced it yet. It's done. It's been done for months, but he is not taking the time to actually create the invoice. Oh my God. It's and you're crazy. saying that's the thing you should have delegated a long time ago. It huh? would put $200,000 in his bank account tomorrow. Golly. You know what I mean? <laughs> Hire a freaking bookkeeper. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the things that I've noticed. And I'd be interested to know if you've ever felt this or if you've observed this in others. It's kind of like you get to this point where you know maybe even delegation would be the wise thing. So you can step into more things that you love. But the things that you love don't always feel like work. Right. And so that's where I'm at right now quite frankly, is, is we've earned the ability for myself and others on our team to step into the things that we love. Yep. And the more I do that, I'm like, am I really working? This doesn't feel like work. And then I start to feel guilty and be like, well, maybe I should be doing more bookkeeping and doing things that I hate because <laughs> that feels like work. How, how do you scale? Because that seems like a psychological blocker. How do you get over that? Oh, I, I remember, so I'll tell you two stories. When we first started hiring to the point where my brother and I weren't the last people in the building every night. Okay. So up until that point, we were the first ones in the building. We unlocked the door and we locked the door at the end of the day. And at some point we, we had a capacity, we had trust with our team and they were now key holders. Right. And yeah. we were able to go home at, it wasn't five, it was like seven thirty or something, but we were able to go home while people were still there working. And that was one of the first things that was like, okay, I have a business now, not just a job. It's a big difference. That's a huge deal. Yeah. But I mean, even just saying that, There is some literature that I don't think a lot of the authors mean to give people this notion, but there's some business books out there that make people feel like if you're not the first person in the office Mm -hmm. and the last person to leave every single day, you're not an effective leader. And and maybe that's true for a season, maybe, but it sounds to me like that's not your experience. I mean, so here's the way I look at it is the grit that, that willingness to do whatever it takes to survive is what makes an entrepreneur successful. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you're never going to transition to that manager or leader phase unless you're willing to let go of things. And a big part of that is that guilt, the entrepreneurial guilt of, um, I have other people here working when I'm not. And, you know, you have to get over that. It's really hard. Some people struggle with that a lot. How do you, either how did you get over that or how did you advise or do you advise other people get over that? So what I had to do was sit down and just like I was mentioning a little bit ago, write down my list of stuff and say what they're working on now is not my responsibility. Hmm. I've, I pay them. I pay them good money to do that for me. I need to let them do it so that I can focus on my job which is going to ultimately grow our organization and create more opportunity for them to grow as well. And that all relates to the willingness to do whatever it takes, because it's like what it takes. I mean, you you probably are not hyper successful if you're staying at the office till 10 PM every night and your family is suffering and kind of whatever it takes shifts gears at that point, no longer as much the hustle and grind Mm -hmm. 12, 15 hours a day. And it goes to like, I need to take care of myself so I can do this for the long haul. Yep. Yeah, one of my one of my team leads at work has a sign on her desk on her cube <laughs> and it says don't mistake busyness for productivity mm. because they are different. And That's right. If it's really easy to default back to our, you know, what we like doing or what we used to do or the mm-hmm. easy work, the urgent work, right? 
you know, you've got to stay focused on the important stuff or you're never going to move forward. Mm. So at that stage, when you started to say, okay, I'm going to start stepping away and inching away from the business, which we haven't even mentioned yet. It's a large format printing company. Mm -hmm. There's now 75 people. Yeah, about. 75, 80, somewhere. Yeah. There. And y'all are actively hiring. Like how many are you hiring probably in the next three months? Do you think? I would say we'll probably hire 15 people. Good gosh. <laughs> Good times. <huh>? Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Okay. So, so growing rapidly, it, it obviously didn't start there. You've, it's been a, it's been an uphill climb to get there. But at that moment where you said, okay, I'm going to start stepping into more of the things that only I can do more of the things that I love. What were those things at that time? Oh, well, it, it really came down to making sure everybody understood where the vision was, mm -hmm. right? Making sure the core values were being followed. You know, the hiring processes were being followed. Those types of things were really important. You know, I own some of the big relationships with some of our bigger vendors and bigger, bigger clients. So that's a big piece of it. But it didn't mean I had to go run a printer. Mm. It didn't mean I had to go get on a ladder and install graphics. I still do that if necessary, but it's not my core. And if I'm stuck doing that, it means I'm not, you know, taking that client to lunch. It means I'm not making sure that our onboarding is being followed properly. And, you know, everyone's getting the, the story of why do we do what we do? The more I can enforce that, the more I can create people and inspire them around me to do things the way that I want them done and what's made us grow and made us successful. And that like, it's almost like there's a shift in your definition of success there. Mm -hmm. It's no, it's no longer really related to your individual performance at all. No, it's not. Well, to a point. Okay. My performance is just different, right? Okay. I have to be one hell of a leader. <laughs> yeah, right? You better be good at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I have, I, we have, we have a group of friends that we chat all the time and they're in my industry and, you know, they kind of knock me cause I don't install all the time and I don't do this. And, you know, we've almost, uh, we've, we've placed people on this pedestal cause they work 80 hours a week. You know, and, and which isn't that just stupid? Why do we admire? I mean, I get it for a season, and I think there's yeah. so much to admire about that for a season. But it's like if you've been working 80 hours a week for 20 years and you're miserable, why do we admire that? Right. It, you said something yesterday in the session we did yesterday. It was like if you make the same mistake over and over and over, it's it, you're not learning from that. You've got to learn, right? Mm -hmm. Difference between perseverance and stupidity. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So, so you said I need to focus on vision, values, mission, making sure that people in our business know mm. the why of this business and they get the heartbeat of this business. And I mean, anyone that walks in your office can see that the culture of your team is remarkable and it's clear that's a priority for the team. It just strikes me that, I mean, at the beginning, you by your own admission, you owned a job, mm -hmm. right? And I don't think that there's this 21, 22, 23-year-old kid saying, you know what would be great is just an aspirational mission. And maybe we should create some <laughs> incredible core. I mean, were you that forward-thinking? or no. Okay. No, no, <laughs> so, so what were you thinking at that time? And then what shifted? I was thinking we needed to pay the bills, Okay, right? Yeah. And then I needed to pay other people's bills. Because as I looked around me, I had 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, and it just grew. I realized there was a lot more mortgages out there than just mine, mm. a lot more kids mouths to feed than just my kids. So it became even more pressure on me to succeed. Right. So we were struggling and doing more and working even more hours and it just became a lot. So we ended up, you know, having to transition and realize at some point that there's more to it than just paying the bills. Right. <laughs> at the same time, I kind of had a bit of a, a crossroads with my brother. So about that same time, we basically decided we were either going to fix the business or sell it or shut it down because we didn't want to continue on the path of working these crazy hours and not getting, I don't want to say ROI because we, we were making money, right? That, but we weren't being fulfilled mm -hmm. and there's a big difference there. Yeah. So along that same time, we ended up finding the book traction and implementing EOS, the entrepreneurial operating system, in our business. And it, it created a lot of clarity for us because it forced us to sit down and have some conversations that we weren't having before. It forced some intentionality and some planning um, and some discussions that just, you know, forced us to decide what are we doing here and why are we mm. doing it, right? Simon Sinek has a great book called Start With Why. Literally figure out your why and it, the rest of it will fall into place. Totally. And what's so cool about the way that you present this in this context is so often we think, and I know you're a student of Pat Lencioni, we mm -hmm. think of mission, values, vision, and knowing your why, things like that. It's like these ethereal things that are a little bit through and maybe like maybe hopefully contribute to this 
ambiguous thing called organizational health. But in terms of the practicality, they don't really add that much to the practicality of the business. Yep. It feels like your entire experience has been, that's been one of the most essential steps you've taken to scaling this thing beyond yourself. That's my job now. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that is my job now is to make sure that organizational health is there hmm. and it is not easy. You know, Pat says, you know, read any one of his books and he'll argue that point of this is not food type stuff. This is the difficult stuff. This is why no one does it. That's right. Right. That's right. Because they would rather go sit and talk about strategy. They would rather go talk about tactics. Uh, They would rather figure out how to deal with that urgent client need right now rather than sit there and tell somebody that their performance doesn't meet the standards. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it's, I mean, it's one of the the things, one of the reasons why I've fallen in love with small business and entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. because if you are beholden to shareholders, it's really hard to make a case for organizational health. Absolutely. But small businesses have this incredible opportunity to not just create work that's productive, but you can create work that's outrageously meaningful for people. But I think that this piece that you're talking about right now, it introduces meaning into the company. Absolutely. You know, as we worked through that and and evolved over the past, you know, five or six years, we've gotten to a point where where our why is so we can live an amazing life with our team members, right? Hmm. I tell people all the time, I interview every single person we hire now. And I tell them, I said, life is short and we deserve to love what we do and who we do it with, period. You tell them this in the interview process? Absolutely. Okay. You know, if I'm talking to other entrepreneurs, I add a little partner. It says, especially if you own the business, right? Because you can make those calls. You can fix those problems. Yeah. If you're not happy. Get up and go. Move somewhere else. You know, and in out. reality, it's I mean, like everyone is the CEO of their life. It's like you can get up and, and you know, it's like that. I just I cannot. I ugh, it drives me freaking crazy, Chris. <laughs> when people sit and complain about their job every single mm-hmm. day and complain about all these things, it's like the, you know, the beautiful thing is that you've been given the will and the opportunity to leave. Yep. Why would you continue to accept a paycheck from someone you disagree with? It's absolutely insane. I don't understand it. I don't understand why you would, one, like you said, take a a paycheck from somebody you disagree with, but why would you continue to employ them, right? Flip that coin on its head. If you run the company, if you run a business division or lead a team and your team is not performing, they don't agree with how you're doing things, whatever, they're not lining up with your standards. Why are you continuing to employ them? At least have those conversations with them. You know, I'm a big believer that nobody should ever lose their job, you know, out of the blue. They should never be a surprise. You set rules up, you know, don't do drugs, don't come to work drunk, you know, stuff like that. Don't steal. If somebody does something like that and you have to can them right then and there, this shouldn't be a surprise because they knew they're breaking the rules. Yeah, right? If it is a surprise, then that's their, they've had too much to drink. Exactly. Right? <laughs> the other side of that is if their performance is not up to par, if they're not living the core values, yeah. they're not getting the job done. It's your job as a leader to make sure they understand that and, and to coach them. You know, you hear the term coach up or coach out. That's right. There is no coaching out in my book. It's all coaching up. And and even if you are coaching somebody up and they choose to leave your organization or you have to ask them to leave, you're still coaching them up because they're not doing their job, right? You are releasing them back into the workforce so they can go find something that they're going to be good at Mm -hmm. and be happier at. Because if someone's not doing their job, you're not happy with them, right? The team's not happy with them. How many times have you heard the story, you know, that you finally terminate somebody and the rest of the team's like, finally, you know? Yeah, that's right. And everyone's like, golly, why did it take this long? And at the same time, that person who's underperforming knows they're underperforming and they're not happy with themselves either. Mm -hmm. So why, you know, continue on that path of misery? Let's just go ahead and make that difficult decision, have that difficult uh, conversation and move on. So shifting back to kind of the, the positive side of this, and that, that actually helps create the positive side of this, but uh, can you say again the sentence that you tell people in the interview mm-hmm. with regard to, to the people you work with? I say every single you know interview, I, I tell it at all of the, uh, the company meetings, life is short. You deserve to love what you do and who you do it with, period. Mm-hmm. So figure it out. If, if you're doing something you don't love, fix that. If you don't love the people you're doing it with, fix it. One of the things that I've noticed with regard to some of the business leaders that we work with, and I've even noticed this for myself, is that in the interviewing process, 
it can be a lot easier to talk about the how than the what and the why. Mm -hmm. And, but what I've also noticed is, I mean, Ramsey is an incredible example of this. Your business clearly is an incredible example of this. I've seen so many businesses that for, for whatever reason, there's like something with regard to the heart of the organization that mm -hmm. it's different. And almost always one of the trends or patterns that I've noticed is man, the what and the why are part of the interview process. Mm -hmm. And it's a leader that has the boldness and the confidence to go there. And although it may feel a little bit, you know, a little bit less tangible than the how of the job or what I need to do. And it, it honestly requires a little bit more emotional vulnerability on your part. Yeah. But people, it just seems like are attracted to that. So, so can you speak to the value and importance of having that in the interviewing process? Absolutely. So, you know, as the visionary, I am having a, a conversation with each and every person. I'm looking for one thing, core value fit, right? I, I learned on early on that I can teach you how to wrap a car, I can teach you how to run a printer or sell something. I can't teach you to care, right? I can't teach you the grit. Y your mom either taught you that or they didn't, period. And it's either there or it's not. And if it's there, I can work with that. So I'm looking for, for do they care? Do they have grit? And then I go through each and every one of our core values to see if they line up with those things. I tell them right there. I say, look, I don't want to get six months down the road and find out you don't align with our core values. You know yourself better than I do. So I want you to make sure, yes, this sounds great. Or no, this doesn't sound great. This, these guys are freaking crazy. I don't want to be any part of this place. I tell them AZ Pro is not for everybody. You know, I've got people out there who don't like the way I do things. That's absolutely okay with me. There's lots of other places to go work, right? Mm -hmm. We have a very small subset of the population that we are looking to hire because we're very picky on who we want. We expect a lot out of our team. We expect them to treat us like family. We want to treat them like family. And, and it's really rewarding when you've got your group around you. You know, you're surrounded with like-minded people who are really pushing for that same common goal. But not everyone's going to align with that. Hmm. And it's almost like you, you have a high enough degree of respect for yourself and for the people you work with mm -hmm. that you are going to enforce an absolutely relentless standard with regard to who is allowed in the building. It's my job to make sure we don't let people who don't belong on the team. And it's my job to make sure that the rest of my team, all my team leads are guarding that with everything they've got. When we do make a, a bad hire, because it does happen, that we're open and honest around that stuff. And, mm -hmm. and we try to work as quickly as we can to fix those problems. Ultimately, we try to get people to, to rise to the occasion because we would love for everyone in the world to think our way, right? Who wouldn't? But it's just, it's not the case. One of the things I really struggled with was when I would see more potential in somebody than they saw in themselves. It was really heartbreaking to me when I would have those conversations with somebody. If you can do this, I know you can. I, you know, if you just understand why this or why that or, and then they won't make the difficult, not even difficult. They won't do the work, mm -hmm. right? They won't make the change. They won't, you know, do the little bit of stuff that we need them to do to get better. I, I love that we get to have this conversation with you because I think so often a lot of the messages that we're talking about right now with regard to prioritize values and make sure that vision and mission are the focus and you can make that your full-time job. A lot of time that comes from people that sit in maybe a little bit more of a role like mine where I'm building a company that's based on content and principles, mm -hmm. right? And vision and values it's not only my job, it's the company's job, right? Or, a, you know, at a bigger scale, Dave Ramsey, Craig Groeschel, Patrick Lencioni, and I have so much respect for those guys. But I think a lot of times the easy excuse to make is, well, I own a lawn care company. Mm -hmm. I can't make my job the mission, vision, and values. Or I, I own a, a pastry shop. I can't make my, I got to do pastries. I can't mm -hmm. make my job the mission, vision, and values. You own a large format printing company. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that being your job and what you would tell those people. So, you know, let's go to teenagers, right? Teenagers yeah. have a bad rap, right? <laughs> go to McDonald's. And, and, the and guy, it reinforces the bad rap. <laughs> right. The guy behind the counter is not thrilled you're there, right? He's not smiling at you. They just, they look miserable. They're probably going to goof your order up and, you know, it's not going to be very warm. It's just a, not a good experience, right? Same teenagers working over there at Chick-fil-A. Hmm. And it's a completely different experience That's across the street. The kids go to the same schools. I've, you probably, I would love to see a case study on this. You should put one together. Okay. We'll work on that. Get a kid who used to work at McDonald's and then get them to work at Chick-fil-A and see what happens. Mm. Right. It's not the kids. It's the leaders. 
right? It's not the fact that you own a lawn care company. It's you, right? You're mm-hmm. responsible for the culture of your organization. Hmm. Fix it. Poof, that's good, man. If, if, if you were holding the mic, I'd tell you to drop it right now. <laughs> you are responsible for the culture. Fix it. But it's almost like to, like every day you tell yourself, this is a landscaping company. Therefore, I can't make my full-time job, mm-hmm. mission, vision, and values. You're absolutely correct. The second you say that I can't do something, you are absolutely correct. Hmm. Whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. So were there any specific limiting beliefs? Maybe it was that one. Maybe it was other ones. Were there any specific limiting beliefs that you had to scale? Because it just strikes me that you have reinvented yourself so many times. Like I just get the feeling that if I were to sit across from 21 year old Chris, this would be a radically different conversation. Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So talk about the limiting beliefs or the obstacles that you had to overcome mentally to become the version of Chris that we get to talk to today. You know, I don't know if they were limiting beliefs as much as it was just lack of knowledge Hmm. and lack of ability and lack of what I could possibly do with my myself. You know, as I, continued to try to grow. I, I read one book and this was the first book that that really put me on the path of, you know, personal development was Seven Habits of Highly mm. Effective People. Mm. And, you know, that one was the first one. I'm like, okay, this is great. And it started me down this path of reading a bunch uh, of, of different of our thought leaders in, in leadership and, you know, business ownership and, you know, culture and vision and all that good stuff. So Hmm. I love that idea that Tony Robbins presents where he says that, you know, everyone thinks of change as this gradual monotonous thing. And he says, yes, I understand where that's coming from. But you need to recognize that anyone that has ever changed in their life, that change happened in a moment. Like it happened at a single moment where they resolved and decided maybe it wasn't perfect from then on, but they decided we're going to burn the boats and we're not going back. And it sounds like seven highly, uh, seven habits of highly effective people for you represented that moment where it's like, we're going to create this virtuous cycle of growth that we're never the same again. It, 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 so the very first Entree Leadership Summit that I went to, Mm -hmm. uh, Dave comes screaming out onto the the stage, (laughs) yeah, I love small business. And his whole first monologue was, you know, I'm going to quote him here, not verbatim, but something about like, you know, I realized, I looked around and I realized there was a bunch of stuff wrong and I realized that it was my fault. Mm -hmm. And he goes, it scared me and it empowered me because I can control the bald guy in the mirror. I'm also bald. You can't (laughs) see. You resonated with that a lot. I was like, yeah, (laughs) it made a lot of sense. So at that point, you know, I had already started down that path of deciding that I was in control. And that's what it starts with is, mm-hmm. is realizing that I'm not the victim here. I'm going to make the decision that I'm going to call the shots. Not that I have control over everything else, but I'm going to control everything I can. Mm. Like you said yesterday, pray for the things I can. That's right. That's absolutely right. So it, one of the things that I really respect about you is, I mean, you've re- probably referenced six or seven different authors already in the conversation. <laughs> it's like, it feels like you're just pulling the best from all these different places and just mm-hmm. constantly learning, constantly growing. And one of the things that I think is really neat is you pulled from, I believe the book is Rocket Fuel, right? Just this whole idea. And, and it's, it's in alignment with everything you always teach us too, of the, the visionary and the integrator yeah. and, and that pairing. So because not everyone is familiar with that vernacular necessarily, I'd love you to kind of articulate and explain what that is. Sure. So go back to my earlier conversation about unique abilities, right? That's right. Most entrepreneurs start off as a one-man show, two-man show, something like that. And you grow and out of necessity, you have to do all kinds of other stuff, right? You're the chief everything officer. At some point, you have to realize that I'm not good at all this stuff. Nobody in the world is good at everything. We each are, have our own unique gifts. And to the extent that we can focus on those and let go of the other things, you can excel, right? The key is if you're letting go of something, you've got to better find somebody else who is good at the other stuff you're letting go of. That's right. So as we talk about rocket fuel, it's the whole, the sum of the two parts is greater than the whole, right? It is they work together symbiotically to be able to push. My brother and I was blessed with him and I taught him, I always joke with him. I say, I taught him everything he knows, <laughs> not everything great. I know. Right. But we work together and we balance each other out really well. I'm mm-hmm. always shooting, swinging for the fences. He's happy with base hits, you know, that type of stuff. 
But as you find somebody who can be your yin to your yang and, and work together with you, it's really powerful. The interesting thing with my brother and I is he's not the integrator. He's <laughs> not the number two in the company. When we first read the book Traction, he, he handed it back to me. He goes, yeah, that's great. I'm not the integrator. And I said, yeah, I know you're not. So it worked out great that we agreed on that. But luckily we had an integrator in the organization and she was able to step up and really just, you know, fill in all my gaps. And I complimented her and pushed her from a vision standpoint and she kept me in check and it really worked well together. That's remarkable. So it's fair to say that your strengths and your unique gifting is casting that vision creation. My guess is that you're pretty good in the sales seat. Mm -hmm. My guess is that you're pretty a creative thinker about the future and, and probably your mind operates in future tense. You're always thinking mm -hmm. about, you know, I, I work with a guy that literally his favorite question to ask is what's next, what's next, what's mm -hmm. next. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, and then I've also got, I'm really good at pro creative problem solving. Okay, So oh, seeing, the, seeing the things that are wrong, being able to say, this is what we need to do to fix it right here, right now, boom. Two steps, we're done. It's okay. And so that's probably because you have a lot of, maybe your natural bent is a strategic mindset. Mm -hmm. Like you're playing chess, not checkers to a degree, Absolutely. right? Okay. T talk to us a little bit about the, the integrator, because if someone wants to hire for this role, it's really important mm -hmm. if you're the visionary to know they're not going to be wired like you. And that's not a reason to dislike them. That's yeah. a reason to pay them really well, right? Yeah. So talk about what the integrator is. Yeah. In, in Rocket Fuel, when Mark C. Winters, he talks about this and it's almost like they're the no person, right? They're they're the person who is going to come in and tell you no all the time. They're going to poo-poo all of your ideas. <laughs> as visionaries, we have like 20 ideas and you know one of them might be good and the other 19 are horrible. We shouldn't do them. But we need somebody to filter that stuff. Otherwise, we, we you know drag our organization through all kinds of changes and it just doesn't, doesn't serve them well. It doesn't serve the organization well either. So having somebody who can, one, hold you accountable, make sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing because, you know, one of the things that, that is really important to have as an entrepreneur is somebody to hold you accountable because you're at the top of the food chain, right? Who is going to sit there and call you out? You know, we try to create a, an environment where people will have those difficult conversations up the food chain, but that is really hard to do because nobody wants to lose their job. That's right? right. You don't want to call your boss out and say, hey, Joe, when you did that thing last week that really made me feel uncomfortable and you were out of line. <laughs> when you said something, what did you say? It was yesterday or two days ago at the team training. You told me, you said, Alex, visionaries are not naturally good at accountability. Absolutely. And I heard that and I was like, I've never thought about it that way, but that is so true. Mm -hmm. and, and we may talk a big game because I think I'm wired more towards this direction as well. I talk a big game out of right. accountability and I'm building a company that's based on accountability. And it, if I'm being honest with myself, it's not a natural strength. I, I understand accountability. I love it. I want it. I don't want to have the conversations. That's right. That's what it comes down to. I am very uncomfortable having those conversations because most visionaries have the, you know, the want to be liked gene, mm -hmm. right? We're entertainers. We're good speakers and that type of stuff. We're and doing. desire to be successful. Absolutely. We do a dashboard now with everyone that, that signs up for Path for Growth. And one of the things that I've recognized is some of the most visionary people I work with the process of defining the things that matter to put on their dashboard, it, it like it is really difficult and challenging for them. I think it represents growth because it's so uncomfortable, right? But it's because they feel like they're limiting themselves because they know, man, this means if I commit to this, it means I have to do it. And it's like, yeah, that's the whole point. If you commit yeah. to this, you have to do it. And that that is hard for the visionary. Yeah. But the integrator is good at that, you're saying. Absolutely. And and this is a big important takeaway. You don't want to stifle your visionary. So you don't want to bolt them down to the ground with all the stuff they have to do. So you don't want them to overcommit. You want them to be free flowing because that's where they're good, right? Mm -hmm. So again, go back to that unique ability. We want them in that space. But the organization can't just be led like that. You're, you'll never get anywhere. You have to have somebody who says, this is where we're going, this is why we're going there, this is what we're gonna do. That's where the integrator comes in play, that second in charge or COO seat, you know, whatever it is. That's the person who's gonna beat the drum. That's the person who's gonna make sure that everybody in the organization is being held accountable. You know, if you ask the visionary to lead the meeting, they're gonna show up at the meeting three minutes before the meeting. If you're lucky, they're not late. Right? <laughs> yeah. They don't have any paperwork. They don't have any agendas. There's no PowerPoint slides. There's no nothing, right? They just show up and start talking. 
The integrator is going to come in with a binder for every single attendee that's outlined. <laughs> it's like with Leslie the... Nope in Parks and Recreation. Oh, yeah. She shows up with everything color coded and all yep. that. That's your integrator. That's the person who's going to allow you to have that historical data to look at, to allow the plans, to record everything that you said you're going to do today so that next week when we all show up again, the, the visionary is on to something new and totally forgot about what they asked everybody to do last week. No, the integrator is going to come in and say, okay, here's your to-dos. Did you get them done? Mm. Here's our priorities for the quarter and for the year. Are we on track? And I believe the awareness that is needed is maybe easier to understand. The application of it, what you said as a symbiotic relationship, mm-hmm. where it's like, and the way I see it show up most times is the visionary gets frustrated because this person's negative and they're slowing mm-hmm. me down. So what is the difference between someone that you put in that seat that is legitimately negative and literally just their default button is no, mm-hmm. and they don't really believe in the future of the organization. So they're probably not a good fit versus right. someone that is extremely measured, extremely cautious, and maybe a lot more resourceful than you are because they know we need to have focus. Yeah. How do you discern that difference? Very carefully and over time. Mm. I mean, it takes some time to, to work through that stuff, but you've got to find somebody who's a good fit. It's probably the most important hire on the organization is making sure that the, the person who's going to hold everybody accountable and execute the vision is, is in alignment with what the vision is. If they don't align, if they can't decide and commit, it's not going to work. And so... It feels like step one is you've got to have a very compelling, clear vision and a purpose and values that make this work worth doing. Because I know people right now that they want an integrator and they haven't done the work to clearly define that stuff. Right. And define it to where it's like it's not just like, oh, yeah, that's a nice mission statement. But it's like people are pumping their fists passionate about it is what you're looking for. Right. Uh, So you have to do that. But then what's crazy about your organization, it's one of the first ones that I've been around, Chris, where you don't just use those integrator and visionary terms as nice terms it's like literally how the org chart is structured yeah like like you are on top of the org chart as the visionary Mm -hmm. and then literally below you is robert who's now your integrator Mm -hmm. and then everyone in some form or fashion reports up to robert and robert reports to you correct it's beautiful i have one direct report so you just blew people's mind right now. You know that like people are just like, how does that work? How does that happen? Mm-hmm. Explain how you get to an org chart that looks like that. Well, it goes back to, to again, creating the expectations and turning those into agreements as far as who's doing what, right? This is my job. This is your job. And my job is to run the vision and you know, look, run the large relationships and stuff like that and culture. And your job is to, to go and execute the vision plan. Mm -hmm. and getting real clear on that it's kind of tough sometimes to resist the urge to do the end runs and and jump down into the middle of the org chart right as you're working through some of that stuff with people but you have to remember as the owner of the company is if you're gonna if you're gonna delegate something you have to delegate it you can't go in there and you know intermingle and, and you know play your owner's card because you're going to screw people up because you're going to cut the legs off of your direct reports and you can't do that. You have to support them. And everyone in the organization has to know that. So when you, as you're talking, if you're, if you've delegated some authority, all you can do is give pats on the backs and high fives below that line, right? Any type of course correction or any type of negative or change that needs to be done needs to be done with that singular person behind closed doors. That's pretty powerful because it means that you probably have to clench your fists sometimes and grit your teeth and just say, I'll have a conversation mm-hmm. with my integrator and like we'll, maybe he'll disagree with me, but we'll have the conversation and then he yeah. or she will address it. Yeah. And it, the biggest struggle for me is I like to move fast, right? <laughs> and it's way faster for me just to go and talk to that printer operator or whatever and tell them how I want things done that one time. It's not faster to make sure it's done like that from then on. So if I move slow now, again, go talk to Robert, say, hey, I noticed Joe was doing X, Y, and Z. We need to talk about that. Let's make sure we put the process in place, retrain on it, whatever we need to do. He'll go and execute that. And theoretically, that problem's gone forever now because he's fixed it right versus my way of fixing it fast. 
Fixing it right versus fixing it fast, two different things. Absolutely. So Robert is your current integrator, and I got to observe a little bit of y'all working together, and we had an interesting meeting with about 25 of y'all's leaders yesterday, and it was neat to see that dynamic of him in the room with y'all's leaders, and you were there as well. I, I want you to speak to, number one, how did you find Robert, and what were you looking for, and then really, how did you deem that he was the right guy to trust in that capacity? Because that's so much trust, Chris. Mm -hmm. So Robert was hired as our Prince team manager. Okay. So and do was, you recommend that most people, if they're looking for this role, hire from like bring the integrator from within? I mean, anytime you can hire from within, it's always in my eyes, probably the best bet because you know what you're getting. They know what they're getting into. They're familiar with your core values and you know, the culture and everything. So anytime you can promote from within, I highly recommend that. It's not always possible. Mm -hmm. There are search firms and, and recruiting firms out there that help just hire second in charges and integrators. And so there's resources out there. There's also fractional integrators. If you are a small company and you can't afford a full on you know, COO type person, there's fractional options out there for you where you can bring them in for a day a week type thing. But he was hired on as our team lead and then ascended to operations director and then ascended to the integrator seat. He sits in the integrator seat and the, the operations director seat now. At what stage in that climb for him did you start to think, man, maybe Robert could fill this role? Mm -hmm. You know, there was always this uh, very symbiotic relationship between he and I and and one of the things that I loved him, he's famous for saying is the answer is yes, right? You know, I'm the crazy, visionary, stereotypical sales leaning person, right? So the sales team's always trying to sell more, obviously. He was the operations director. There's, and historically, there's always this sales versus ops kind of rift, right? His answer is always trying to get to yes. And just as a salesperson, I loved that, you know? So <laughs> people are going to try and hire Robert. You better be careful. Yeah. <laughs> Leave him alone. Yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> the, but the nice thing is he's always trying to get to yes, but he's still willing to tell you no, right? Mm. That's the difference because he will not let himself fail. He will not let the team fail. So he will be brutally honest with you. If you're asking him to do something he can't do, he will tell you. And that's what makes a really good integrator because you have to be able to say no. If all your integrator is going to do is go along with whatever the visionary says, you, you don't have an integrator. Hmm. So if you're interviewing for this role, either internally in your organization or you're starting to cast the net, you say, okay, I bought in Chris. I want an org chart that looks like yours. I'm going to start. First of all, you should read Rocket Fuel and mm -hmm. books related to this. And we'll put the links to all the resources Chris is missing or mentioning in the, in the show notes of this episode. But if they say, okay, I want to cast that net, what are you asking in the interview process and what are you looking for in the interview process? I mean, you're asking him, again, core value fit if you don't already know that. Yeah. You've got to make sure there's a good core value fit. I suggest for, for a, a higher of that level, you better be doing probably close to 10 interviews, right? You're taking them to lunch. You're taking them to dinner. You're getting another spouse. You know, you're doing all that type of stuff. It's not just a skills thing. It's not just a, oh, you came from a giant competitor that I want to be like. No, don't be careful of that. But you've got to make sure there's a good fit. And you've got to see demonstrated where they've spoken up where they've you know introduced accountability where there wasn't previously if you if that's where you're at you've got to find somebody who's willing to say no so have they had those difficult conversations with their boss previously when i'm trying to determine whether or not somebody has a specific value i ask them for specific instances where they've demonstrated in the past and i'm not looking for some big oh i always do this okay great tell me about three specific times when you did if they can't rattle three off on the top of their head, it isn't important to them. They may not even have done it, right? Mm -hmm. So if they can't tell you that type of stuff, it's probably not something that they're focused on. Hmm. Can you speak to, we already talked a little bit about entrepreneurial guilt. I feel like it can start to show up here again as you start to step into more of the vision role. And because that's the thing you enjoy and you're literally taking all the things that you don't enjoy and giving it to this new one person, mm -hmm. you're like, man, I, I feel guilty around this or this doesn't even feel right. How do you address that person? Again, it goes back to realizing that you shouldn't be guilty. You should feel free. You don't have like, I mean, if you're going to go sit on the beach and, and just 
completely abandon your business, okay, feel guilty, I guess, or, or <laughs> really right. enjoy yourself. Or sell your business. <laughs> right. But what you can do is you've now got all this time to do the things that you really need to be doing, mm-hmm. right? And just, just focus on that stuff. There's no <laughs> guilt associated with that. It, there, you should feel very honored to be able to do that. And, you know, we need, every organization out there needs the visionary to be the visionary. Mm-hmm. We don't need the visionary to be out there sweeping the floor. Right. It's one thing for the visionary to do that stuff, to set an example for the culture. You know, that's absolutely necessary. I'm not saying, you know, you're, you know, holier than thou and shouldn't, you know, help the team out. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it shouldn't be your default. You shouldn't spend 30 hours a week working on the line. You know, that's a big difference than, you know, jumping in there and shadowing somebody for a day and showing them you still know how to do it. That's right. And it's not helpful for you to spend 30 hours. And that's that, like, if we would just ask what is helpful, what is actually mm-hmm. helpful? One of the things that people ask me a lot is what's kind of one of the biggest things that I've learned just in getting to interview remarkable people like yourself, all the people that we've interviewed for Path for Growth, and then also in everyone that we interviewed at Entree. And uh, there's a bunch of answers to that. But one one of the things that has stood out that is a little bit terrifying is just how remarkably normal these people are. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so easy to to hear your story, Chris, and be like, man, he's got 75 team members, multi-million dollar company, bootstrapped it from the ground up. He's now sitting on top of this org chart and one guy reports to him and all of the other people are reporting to them and they're hiring 16 people over the course of the next three months. And it's almost like because we're either only halfway up the mountain or at the bottom of the mountain, Mm -hmm. we see that and we believe that's all Awesome for you, but we also believe that's not possible for us. Mm-hmm. What would you tell that person? Go hang out with some people like that. Mm-hmm. You know, surround yourself with people who are like who you want to be. You'll find out that they're all normal. You know, I've known plenty of millionaires, plenty of you know athletes and celebrities and stuff like that. I've had a chance to meet over the years. They're all normal people, mm-hmm. and what they actually want is to be treated like a normal person. You know what I mean? If you ran into you know. Taylor Swift or somebody ultra famous like that, you know, they just want to be able to go to the grocery store. Hmm. That's like one of the things they miss. And if you ask them, (laughs) you know, it's crazy, but you know, just get to know people like that. If you want to grow your business to 50 people, start surrounding yourself with some people who have businesses where they have 50 people. And one thing I've learned is people who have grown like that, they love talking about it. Mm. Right. That's why I'm here with you. Yeah, I love right. helping other business leaders succeed. It's one of my passions. And how can we do that? Well, I can easily take somebody who's asking how to, to scale their business and help them. Okay, so let's talk about that because I think this is a skill that is not taught, but is probably one of the most valuable skills people can learn. My assumption is that if there's a 20-something that reaches out to you or that meets you somewhere, maybe at church or at Starbucks or maybe coincides with your company and says, man, that Chris, he's doing a lot of cool things. I'd love to hang out with that guy a little bit. And he asks you to lunch. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's one guy that sits down at that lunch and you leave that lunch saying, I probably won't do that again. That probably (laughs) wasn't a good use of that of my time Mm -hmm. versus there's another guy that you sit down for lunch and you're like, just let me know how I can help. And I know that's your heart. Just like whatever you need, day or night, just give me a call. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between those two people in terms of how they use that lunch? Humility. Hmm. 100%. If you're going to ask somebody for help, listen to what they're saying. Mm -hmm. You know, don't, I've had people ask for my thoughts on things and then argue with me about it. (laughs) And it's fine. I don't profess to be right about everything, but if you are you know, and, and, and I don't want to come off like I'm saying, like I think that, or I don't want to have a, a debate because I'm all open for that. But if you're going to argue, if you're going to be antagonistic about it, that's kind of a, a weird place to be. That's right. Yeah. And I think it's, there's a difference between hanging out and asking questions to learn. Mm-hmm. And I think if you are someone that's humble, that's sitting down with someone like yourself and you're in your twenties and clearly like there's some things that you've done that I haven't, Mm -hmm. I better show up ready with some questions and not ready just to tell you my life story. Yeah. (laughs) Two ears, one mouth, right? Yeah. Explain that a little bit. You know, God gave you two ears, one mouth. That should be the ratio. If you are interviewing somebody, if you're talking to them, if you're trying to learn something, Mm -hmm. no matter what it is, you're trying to learn. If you're on a sales call, you should be doing most of the question asking 
and listening to the answers. That's how you sell. Same thing, if you're trying to learn how to run a better business, or you're trying to learn something from somebody who maybe has that more, more expertise or experience than you, just listen a lot. That's where it's from. So the business is called Path for Growth. And one of the things that I'm focusing on a lot right now is what makes growth worth it, mm-hmm. right? Because there's a lot of blessing associated with 75 people and the business that you've built today. But there's probably also just as many more problems and many uh, issues and many challenges and obstacles. Those don't go away, I've heard, right? Okay, so what makes growth worth it? So when we started, we were just trying to feed our families, right? Mm -hmm. Back then, it wasn't even a family. It was just myself and my brother. As we grew, we started feeding other people's families. And that's what it's about. It's about not only feeding a family now, but, you know, I've tried to improve my life. You know, it's not just about money. It's about, well, what can I do with that money? And the same thing I've seen with other people in the organization, they've made dramatic changes to their families and to the the family trajectory, right? Of where they're going, where their kids are going to go because, you know, of the leadership that, that we've been able to bake into the organization. So, (laughs) And I think that ties into something I I know you're also extremely passionate about is just kind of the role of the free enterprise system and the role of business owners and business leaders. You're just a little bit passionate about this, (laughs) right? I, I, I think that it's one of the things that's really sad and I also think really toxic today is that it's almost like the word capitalist is becoming a a cuss word. Mm -hmm. And so I'd just love to know, because I know you're so intentional in just kind of being aware of what's going on in our country and and the pulse of the discussions that are happening. Mm -hmm. I'd love just for you to speak a little bit about where things are at and not because everyone's necessarily going to agree with it. They don't have to agree with it, but just give your perspective. You know, it's interesting because like you said, profit is a bad word, right? Capitalism is a bad word. And the same people who will tell you that profit's a bad word will also tell you that there shouldn't be government bailouts. Well, if you're not going to have a government bailout, you have to have profit so that you can have some retained earnings so that when things do go down, because they will absolutely 100% are going to, you're going to have a bad month, you're going to have a bad year. You need to be able to float through that stuff. If you haven't made a profit in the past, you're not going to do that. So as I look at this and I say, okay, great, that we all need a profit, but you know, at some point, do we need that much profit? You know, yeah. There's a, a weird thing in my head and it's probably not a very widely accepted thought process, but you know, to me, to be a billionaire to me is crazy, right? Because I couldn't imagine a point in my life where I would want a billion dollars. Of course you want it, but you literally can't spend that money. <laughs> There's only only so many cars and jets and all that stuff. Yeah, right. How much good stuff could you do with that money? You know, how could you change the trajectory of so many people at your company? If you're an entrepreneur, if you own a, a company and you're worth a billion dollars, you could reinvest that money into your team. You reinvest it into the community you come from. You know, there's all kinds of different things you can do with that. And I think if we had more of that type of willful reinvestment, the willful sharing of the spoils of our success, we wouldn't have to have this forced sharing, right? Through taxation and all of that. So I'd much rather give my money away than have it be taken away. That's That's my thought process. And so the the whole idea around billionaires, I know, isn't something morally against billionaires. It's Mm -hmm. just like, it should be really hard to get to a billion dollars if you're literally, if your priority is, I'm going to pour back in, I'm going to pour back in. Right. And that, and I think I shared this with you the other day. It was a interview that I heard that Jordan Peterson did. And it was with a guy that had spent a lot of times, I believe the guy was, had operated in conjunction with the democratic party. And he said, the question, that that conservatives should be asking themselves, and I so agree with this, the question conservatives need to be asking themselves is where did we fail to such a degree that for a portion of the population, Mm -hmm. socialism seems like a viable and better option? Like, let's talk about ownership. Take responsibility for that and say, like, that's not a them problem, that's an us problem. Because clearly the option that we're proposing isn't very lucrative. Yeah. There, there are a lot of people out there who are disenchanted because there are billionaires running around out there with billions and making more billions. It's crazy. There are bad owners out there. There are bad entrepreneurs out there. There are bad you know, leaders and bosses. And that's why a lot of people hate their jobs. That's right. Crazy to me, you know? But the answer is not to just call them a bad one. The answer is to go be a good one. Absolutely. You know, 
We live in the greatest country on the planet by far. And it's because of the opportunity we're afforded to do whatever we want to do, right? It's because we can have a disagreement and it's okay. I think that actually makes us stronger, not weaker, right? The only way that America is going to be um, torn apart is from within. Mm -hmm. Nobody Nobody else can touch us. That's right. I think a lot about how it feels as though, and I've seen this shift even just in my lifetime. I can't imagine what people that have been around longer than I have have seen, but it's like it's gone from a discussion about right versus wrong, Mm -hmm. which I think that's totally good. Like, I mean, if you believe that there's an objective truth, then inevitably we're going to have discussions about right versus wrong, but it's, we've completely wiped that off the table and now it's right versus evil for both sides. And that's just toxic. It's insane to me to, you know, that we're all so narcissistic and we all are because we all think our idea is the way and anything else is completely wrong. That's insane because you know, the truth is usually somewhere in the middle. The best path forward is somewhere in the middle through some sort of a compromise. And if we're willing to have those conversations, we can usually get to a better, better solution. But so often now we're not willing to have those conversations. We're just going to sit here and argue with each other. We're going to call each other names. We're going to, you know, stop following them or delete them or whatever it is, because, you know, half the conversation is done on you know, the computer now via social media of some sort. That's right. Related to that as well, I, I know for a fact there's probably people on your team that that disagree with you and disagree with some of your perspectives. There's probably people that you hang out with socially that, mm-hmm. that are radically different than you in your perspectives. Speak a little bit about the toxic way to handle that, that it's like, this can't work. We can't, like, we can't spend time together anymore versus the healthy way to handle those disagreements. Yeah. I mean, statistically, half of the people around you are going to disagree with you, right? I mean, it's just how it is. (laughs) Sorry to break it to you. Yeah. And if you can't deal with that, you know, you've got to, you've got to look at yourself and, and ask yourself why that is, you know, again, it goes back to that narcissism and is there a better way out there that I don't know? Do I, do I have to have a, a little bit of humility and say, I might not know everything. I might not have all the answers, right? There's probably a lot of things that I feel very passionately about that I'm absolutely wrong about, and it's okay. There's people out there who are also absolutely wrong about what they think. Mm. You can have those conversations with people. You can talk about that stuff without hating the person. You know what I mean? It's the thought process. It's the behavior. You can, it's, it goes back to like accountability, right? Mm-hmm. If you're talking to a team member, if they are not meeting expectations in some way, you don't attack the person. You talk about the behavior. We need to fix the behavior. We're not trying to sit there and say the person's not worthy or, or not you know, in alignment. It's a, hey, we just need to fix this behavior here and get that back in line. It's kind of the same thing goes back to any type of a disagreement you've got. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, understanding that, okay, you can disagree and I can disagree and great. If we can still work together and be happy, again, going back to that loving the people you work with, right? Love the people you surround yourself with. Great. If you can't do that, you got to prune that branch and make that decision because, you know, even if it's a friend on social media or something and they keep posting something that irritates the heck out of you, (laughs) use the unfollow button. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Well, and it's just so easy right now to point fingers and talk about everything they've got wrong. And just especially, I mean, money is just the, the most visceral example. I don't even think it's probably the most profound example, but it is the most tangible thing that people point out a lot of times. And it's like so often if we're not careful, we can point at the lack of generosity in others mm-hmm. when really we should just ch- take that as a challenge to be more generous ourselves. Yeah, One thing I, I like to just, you know, just put it in perspective a little bit, right? You know, we talk about the need to share the wealth or pay your fair share or whatever it is, right? We're talking about that in, in the, the, the small portion of the world that is the United States of America, right? Mm-hmm. How many billions of people out there live on this planet that are not part of this country that are way more impoverished than we are, right? We want to start talking about human rights and all this. Well, the, our poorest people here live like kings compared to some other people in the rest of the, in the rest of the world. And we still don't want them to be poor, right? That's never the goal, but it's like, that is a pretty powerful perspective to frame and be like, man, we are like, Poor here means you have a TV and a car a lot of right. the times. It means your iPhone is the last version or something, right? That's right. Yeah. And, you know, what we don't want people to hear is that's not a lack of compassion. Mm-hmm. It's just a recognition that whenever 
something happens whenever we can look at our situation, regardless of how comparatively bad it may be to the guy down the street, when we can look at our situation and say, man, there's actually things to be grateful for here. That unlocks everything. Absolutely. Hmm. You know, if you're sitting there again with a victim mentality all the time, you're not going to be successful. If you can sit there and be grateful for the things that you do have and and understand the things that you can control and work to control those, you're going to move forward. Hmm. That's right. Well, Chris, I I know that there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that uh, have gotten a lot of value from this conversation just because it's been both, um, I think, purposeful, right? There's like a level of principles that we're talking about, but it's Mm -hmm. also been incredibly practical. And I think the reason why that is, is because in so many ways, you represent the ideal person that we like to talk to, right? Like we like to talk to someone that that really is, I mean, by nature, a customer of Path for Growth, impact-driven leader, mm-hmm. someone that has a track record of getting results, but it's not results for the sake of results. It's results for the sake of impact. That is you to the nth degree. And then has the ability to communicate about what they've learned on that path. Mm-hmm. And man, this was just awesome. Before we go today and before we get to the final question, I'd love for you just to tell a, people a little bit about what you're doing now with Next Level Growth and everything associated with that, because that's just so exciting and how they can be in touch with you. And then we'll go to the final question. Yeah. So part of of what's really become awesome for me is just being able to take a step back from the business and really help other entrepreneurs grow and help them succeed because it doesn't have to be that hard. Right. And it's some of those I realized and having a coach help me through some of that as I, as I, you know, transitioned through my entrepreneurial just journey has been great. So you can reach me at nextlevelgrowth.com or chris at nextlevelgrowth.com. Very cool. And we'll put the link to that and all that information in the show notes of this episode as well. Final question for you would be what encouragement or what challenge do you have for the entrepreneur that's listening to this and that's in the trenches of really trying to do work that is outrageously productive? They want to be incredibly successful. And at the same time, they want to do it in such a way that it provides meaning and adds value both to the people that work with them and their customers. What encouragement would you give those people? I would say just start to build a plan. Be intentional about a plan. What is it going to look like for you to take the next step in growth and then start making progress? And it doesn't have to be, it's not going to be overnight. It's going to be daily work that you're going to put in and gradually see success. And and, and you have to keep going at that. You have to have the grit to keep going, even when things might not, might not feel successful. I love it. Well, Chris, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for for your energy and passion. And and more than that, thanks for just being willing to share such an incredible story about the path that you've walked. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure, Alex. Gosh, there is just so much gold uh, in Chris's perspective and the way that he communicates it. I just have so much admiration for someone that has principles that they deeply believe in, but they're not just theorizing on those principles or talking about those principles hypothetically. They are in the trenches of applying those principles day in and day out. And man, if that's not Chris Prenovos, my goodness, that guy is just doing absolutely awesome things. He and his team both out in Arizona. So Chris, we're thankful for your time for your energy, and for your investment. Hey, here's one thing that stood out to me from that conversation and from my time with Chris. He, he spends a little bit of time talking about understanding that not all people that want to work with you or that work for you even for a season are ultimately your people. And sometimes they just don't line up with your company. They don't line up with your culture. And that's not good or bad. That just is. But so often, one of the things that I've seen is people can't make those tough decisions or make those challenging choices because they have not done the hard work on the front end to clearly identify what they as leaders and what the business stands for. Now, this is your organization's core values. And so I would ask you, number one, have you defined and refined your core values to where it is three to five things that you don't just kind of think about as like, oh, those are nice things. Or you don't just have them in a binder in a filing cabinet somewhere or in a folder on your desktop. You have them memorized. Your team has them memorized and you live by these things. 
You hold yourself and your team relentlessly accountable to these standards because that is so unbelievably crucial to understanding the identity of your organization. And when you get clear about your organization's identity, you know what else becomes clear is who's on the right bus and who's not. So if you haven't done that, start taking step one to saying, what do we stand for and can we commit to living by these things? Well, I hope this conversation was valuable today. Please take some time to rate and review the podcast. And if you can think of someone maybe that owns a business or is a leader in a business that you want to share this with, we'd be so grateful if you helped us spread the news about what we're doing here on the Path for Growth podcast. We're rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.